Hi, this is uh, Ellen Barnett, and I'm here with another episode of Smart Women I Know. And I am sitting today with one of the smartest women I know, Gwen Foreman, who is the Senior Vice President at Cumberland Farms of Marketing, I should say, of Marketing. Um, so say hello, please. Hello, <laughs> everybody. I'm in Walpole, Massachusetts today, which is actually a really beautiful little part of the world. Thank you. Yes. No one's ever heard of it, but it's not bad. So first, I'd love to start with Salem, Oregon. All right. We can, we can, go, um, we can start before that, actually. Well, because tell I me about that. So I, I actually I didn't grow up in Salem, Oregon. I, I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia. Wow. So um, I'm, it's on the West Pacific Northwest in Canada. Uh, in British Columbia. So I lived there until um, I was in, in ninth grade. I, I moved in the summer between eighth and ninth grade. Were, so, you, were you a Canadian citizen at I the time? Was, I was. I was. I actually had to uh, to take the oath and the whole thing. So really? Yeah. How old were you when you did that? I was 15. My father was actually an American citizen. Oh, I see. And my mother was Canadian and they met in University of Toronto. And how many brothers and sisters? I have three sisters. I'm the second of uh, four girls. Oh, my goodness. Um, so you're a girl's girl or a guy's girl? It's interesting. I mean, I, I grew up with sisters. I have one, of my children, only one is a boy. Um, my dad was an intellectual. He never watched sports. He never did the boy things. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not as... Um, as attuned to that whole male thing as I would be if I had maybe grown up with brothers. But my personality was very much a tomboy as a kid. Were and you the tomboy? I was or the ter- I was the tomboy. Yes, absolutely. In my family. Yeah. So you weren't. So you weren't like chorus kid. Like no, no shows. You were sports. I was not even sports. I mean, in, it's interesting. Canada and the U.S. are different, and the West Coast of Canada, at least at the time, was. Uh, what I was into was like living out, you know, going outside all day long. We had like a beautiful wooded area near our house with a pond. I had a dog. We used to go fishing, outdoorsy stuff. And you were, so that's a transitional age. You were 15 when you moved? Yes. Wow. That's tough. Tough. It was very tough. Tough age. Did any of your sisters feel it as acutely as you did? I'd say my older sister and I felt it the most acutely because we were at that very impressionable teenage age. She's a year older. Um, the younger siblings were young enough that they didn't feel it as, as badly, but that going to a new high school, and by the way, you know, as I said, the Canadian culture was different. Nobody wore makeup or dressed to the nines. And first day at high school, like everyone made fun of my clothes. And it was, it was wow. really a different culture. We went from pl- make-believe play right, still at like 14, 15 years old with my little sisters to boyfriends and jewelry and makeup and a real huge cultural shock for my sister and I. Did your parents anticipate that? I don't think so. I don't think so. How did they manage you guys with that? Well, you know, I don't think they managed it, but we had a couple of tough years when we first moved, just being on the outs. And I remember we had these, everyone wore clogs in Canada. And my dad was a doctor and they wore clogs too, which probably influenced us. So we bought what we thought were the coolest blue clogs. We wore them to school. Oh Oh my God, you really don't want to wear blue clogs. (laughs) (laughs) In my American high school. Oh no, that was bad. 
anyway, so we were sort of the laughing stock for a period, but it, it was fine. But after that. but but at home, I mean, you you must have been either translating this if you oh, had absolutely. a really good yeah. I went under my bed and cried after that first day and said, "I'm never going back to that school." And how did your parents deal with? Well, it? they were great. I mean, they sort of they they sort of talked me out of it and said, you know. They were always very supportive of us and making us feel good about ourselves. So, you know, you're a great person. You don't need to forget who you are. You don't need to blend in. You'll find people to be friendly with, which which we did, you know, and it ended up being fine. And you had a sister going through it. Exactly. Which probably helped. It did. It did. We were both equally miserable <laughs> for that first couple of years. But um, but we ended okay. You know, it was. it's not like I hated high school. Like a lot of people hate high school. My memory is not hating high school. My memory is I had a tough first year or so, and then I actually had a good time and good friends, and one of my closest friends in the world was someone I was friendly with in high school. Really? Yeah. Now, where does she live now? She lives um, in, on the West Coast as well. So we moved to Salem, Oregon as in high school, and, um, and I met her there. But when I eventually moved to the East Coast, it was in part because of her, because she went to Tufts. And that's, you know, a long story, but she ended up wow. at Tufts and I ended up coming out for the summer because it was during the Massachusetts miracle and there was a lot of employment, whereas in Oregon, there's no employment. And where I went to college, there was no employment. So I, I came out and lived with her and then, you know, eventually she moved back to the West Coast, but I'm actually out here largely because she was out here on the East Coast. So you decide to go to Washington, George Washington? It was Washington, Washington University. University in St. Louis. Yes. yes. Why? So it's interesting. Um, you might think I did great research on it, and I, I thought it was a perfect fit. The truth was, I wasn't that mature at that age, mm -hmm. and I was kind of unsure about the whole college thing and where I wanted to go, and I didn't, I wasn't impassioned by one subject. You know, some kids are. I wasn't like that. So um, I ended up applying to a couple of the Oregon schools, like all my friends, I applied to Dartmouth, which is where my dad went, and I applied to Washington University because for many years I worked in my dad's office in the summer as my summer job, and, um, and the, his assistant slash nurse, one of her kids went there, and so I heard about it for years and how great it was and how awesome, and, and I was like, well, you know why don't I try it? It's in the middle of nowhere. I, you know, right. and, uh, and in the end I didn't get into Dartmouth and I decided I didn't want to stay near home. And so it's not like I applied to many colleges. I only applied to four and I ended up at WashU. Were your parents, were they trying to get you to go to one specific place or did they have any influence or was it your time? In my time, I mean, we were first generation to college. So, my parents couldn't guide us. I yeah. mean, we, they really, they picked names out of a hat. They saw Ivy yep. and they went, Ivy. Yeah, yeah. That's, yep. that's where you're supposed to go. Right, 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 right. Which then translates, it's a little hard because you, you're, you know, you hit a wall. You don't know what you're getting into. Did you have any of that? Because your parents well, went to university. They did, but you know, I think my dad wanted me to go to Dartmouth. There's no question about it. In fact, it was funny because he was a really strong supporter of Dartmouth and he used to interview local candidates and, you know, gave money to Dartmouth. And, and then when I applied and got rejected, he was sort of a little bit heartbroken. And I remember 
<laughs> they wanted so to admit me, but I just wasn't all that outstanding in high school. And uh, they said they sent a letter to my dad. Basically, the essence of it was, "Are you sure there wasn't something about Gwen that you haven't told us?" Oh, <laughs> and we laughed so hard. I mean, it was like oh it was such God. a like we really want to help you out, Doctor Schoenbaum. You've been such a strong supporter, but your daughter just isn't that good. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. It well, was, that's that's actually a really good thing to hilarious. get early in your life. It was hilarious to have people that laugh at it with you instead of totally. somehow thinking that that's real. Yes. No, no, no. That's exactly what happened. It was funny. And it's, you know, it's Dartmouth. And things have changed over time significantly. Now getting into Dartmouth... It's an act of God. Is an act of God. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yes. I, <laughs> it was for me back then, too. And so and so you're at... Um, you're in St. Louis. Yes. Um, and I'm assuming that the campus... Was it a city campus or was it... More... It's a, it's in the middle of the city, but it's very very self contained, and oh, everybody lives on campus, and all the activities are on campus, and um, it was great. I had the best experience. I enjoyed it. I loved my friends. I I like I loved after the freshman year where I had a terrible difficult academic time. I loved the academics and. Um, I couldn't have been happier. I was really happy in college. It was great. And you were a math major, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that that's right. I decided to do that, yeah. Well, what's interesting is that you're now, I mean, for the last, I guess, a couple of different career moves, you've been in marketing, a director of marketing, which is really sort of interesting. I was an English major. Okay, no brainer. Yep. But, but... You were a math major. First of all, kudos, because girls weren't math majors back then. Yeah, they really weren't. And so you must have been sitting in a lot of classes that were you and guys. That's, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting. You know, you say English. So I was an English minor, and I, I almost double majored in it. I loved English. So you might say, why did I major in math? Because my father... I came home for, you know, maybe Christmas or something one year, and we were talking about majors, and I said, I'm not sure I know what to do. Do I major in English? Because I love it, and I'm a huge reader and always have been, and I'd love to analyze books. Um, but I kind of like math, too. And my dad said to me, you, you do what you want, but I would advise you to do the math thing because it'll make you more unique. And it was a really... That interesting thing insight. that changed so much probably about what I ended up doing in life because it's true. I'm not a rocket scientist, but when you, people seem to think that people that major in math are so smart, trust me, I'm not that smart, but I majored in math and I think it really helps because there are so few of us, it's in, in, especially women. Just people don't, A lot of people don't love math. And I always tell my kids, you know, some of whom really don't like math, I hated math up until sophomore year in high school when I had a really good math teacher. I hated it. I thought I couldn't do it. And that is and what And he it opened is. my eyes to, oh my gosh. And I was way behind coming from Vancouver into this school in Oregon. I was way behind. I had to start at like basic math in ninth grade. I never got to even trig, let alone calculus in high school. I had to take that all in college. So I was really behind. So the concept of even being a math major when I was so far behind a few years back but um, 
but anyway, so yeah, it, it's funny how it, it ends up. But I still love English. I love it. I love to, to read and write, and you know that. Well, yeah, but that's, but that's part of it, too, is that when you have something like an English minor, it just instills the love and an understanding of how to read text. Absolutely. Now, see, I, you know, when most of my friends who have not known what they wanted to major in in college and ended up just sort of picking a major they all end up in marketing because it's like it, it's, a it's wasteland. A yeah, and but there's a lot of different elements to it. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I actually didn't start in the marketing job I have now. I started in a statistical... I started in market research, which is really? math intensive. Database. Statistical yeah. analysis. So it's... That's how the that's the sort of transition is I went from, you know, math and English and actually in college they do that little aptitude test and say, here are some careers that might be interesting to you. Right. So one of them was um, actuarial work and then the other one was quantitative market research, consumer research. And I I talked to a few people who knew people who were actuaries and they're like that's really boring stuff. I don't think you're going to like it. <laughs> and so I actually went into consumer research. I, I, I couldn't get it as my first job out of college when I moved to Boston, but the second job I got was that, and I did that for years. And, and it, it was like it preceded what's happening now because everything is based off of that kind of an insight, only you know exponential with the birth of analytics and exactly IoT. exactly it's really uh it's really interesting and, it, and I think back often about my dad's words and and the root of those you know in retrospect my dad was an English major my mom was an English major runs mm-hmm. in the blood my sisters are all varieties and flavors of that but my dad graduated from Dartmouth with an English major and decided he wanted to go to medical school and then he had to take all the prerequisites it bundled with medical school and that's why he went to University of Toronto, because they offered such a program where you could, for people who are what I call late bloomers. And so when, when he talked to me, I, he was thinking, don't make that mistake. If you have an interest in something else, give yourself some options, because he had had to do it the hard way. I, th- I think that's what was going on with his advice. I think if anything I've learned over my career, and even in life, is you may have a, a plan, but you've got to be willing to deviate from it. And I think that adaptability has been... I wish I could say that when I was 17, I, I knew where I was going to be, but I would have laughed if you told me where, I, where I'd end up today, all those years later, because I never would have predicted it. Some people do. They're like, I love, I'm going to teach, I'm going to teach English in high school, or I'm going to be an actress, or I never had that. I wasn't sure. And I've kind of followed a winding path, but it's been okay, as long as you're willing to roll with it, you know? I think every career needs a variety of knowledge, sources, bases. Each of us has to think in our roles, I think. And I I think this is what makes you very good at what you do now, is that maneuverability, that, uh, that knowledge base that covers such a wide range that you can draw from it. Sure. What would, would people at your job right now say that was something that you would do or what what would they say about you if you if you were um to ask or someone else was to ask what is what's Gwen's specialty what does she do that defines 
what that nugget is that makes her good at it? I would say, um, I would say having a broad array of skills as opposed to a depth in any one. So I think that for the, the career I ended up in, having a good knowledge of, you know, sort of quantitative financial is really helpful for managing budgets and all, you know, doing analytics on marketing programs. It comes easily to me. But also just being able to sort of read and write and communicate orally. I I'd had a couple of jobs there in that consumer research where I, when I was in my 20s where I had to give up and get up and give a lot of speeches. And then when I was a consultant, I spent a lot of my time doing that. So being able to speak publicly um, and communicate, you know, in memos and I think communications, analytics. And probably the biggest thing is being, and I'm talking about skills as opposed to sort of, you know, work ethic and those sorts of things. Um, I think you need to, in my career, you need to like people and you need to enjoy managing them. And you need to, and not just managing them, but working with them, your peers and your bosses. And it, I think of it like a puzzle, you know, people are different. And the way to motivate them is different based on their personality. Back to what you were saying about psychology, people, I have, my direct reports now are totally different. I could never adopt the same management style with all of them. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and I think, and I've had bosses that some of them, you want to keep them up to date almost daily and others, they don't want to see you for three months, but it works. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that adaptability again, but I know people who hate managing other people yeah. and, and it's, I like it. I think it's fun and interesting. I genuinely like people. I tend to really get to know people who I work closely with and, and really appreciate their skills. And I couldn't do my job without them. So why wouldn't I appreciate their skills and enjoy working with them? You know what I mean? But have you always been like this as a personality? Type? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was born in you. I think so. I mean, I, I'm not a sole contributor. I like working in groups. I like working in organizations. I like... I, I'm not like hugely extroverted. When I say I like people, I, I, I do, but I'm not actually, you saw me at a party where I didn't know anyone. I'm, I'm very quiet and shy, but when I'm working with people and I get to know people, everybody's got so great, such great things. You just have to find them. Do you yes. know what I mean? Like some people are like artists and they have this ability to see things visually. That's just amazing. I can't do that. Thank God I, I have people on my team who can. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh, and then all the other skills. I have people who are tremendous negotiators. I'm a terrible negotiator. But I don't need to negotiate because I have people that do that really well, way better than I could. And I really appreciate that in them. How do you manage the conflicts then? I think, you, first of all, they're not, they're not that common. And... But when they do come up, I'm a collaborative personality. I'm not a command and control person. So it sounds silly, but I, I try and get people to see common ground. We are all trying to achieve the same goal. We're trying to build our sales. We're trying to build our marketing. We're trying to get uh, customers fanatic about our brand. And we all have a different role in that. And if there's a conflict, let's think about a way that we can work around it and still try and achieve that common goal. I think conflict resolution is about an understanding 
more than anything else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, how often do people come to my office and say, so-and-so did this and da, 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 and, and I'd be like, let's talk about why that person might be doing that or behaving that way. And there's always a good reason for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, but you don't know that until someone raises it and says, well, the reason that person's behaving that way is because this is what they, their objectives are different than yours. In fact, in this particular case, their bonus is based on something that's in direct opposition to yours. That's why they're acting that way. So we need to figure out a way to work together to achieve the goals that they have and the goals that you have. And I think it's about understanding. I really do. So are much time is wasted. That? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely they are. Absolutely they are. So I think it's about, as I said, communication, understanding, um, I always tell people, assume the best. It's not always true, but 90% of the time it is. Assume the best in others. Do you know what I mean? People I do. will come up and they'll say, so you wouldn't believe what they're trying to do over in accounting. They've got this new process and they're going to do this and it means all our invoices are going to be delayed for three days. And, and there's this hullabaloo. And let's talk about this. Why might that be happening? Oh, they've been told they need to cut staff. Okay. Let's think about how we can get together with the finance department and talk about the fact that if you, if you make the lead time on processing invoices too long, we lose money on cash discounts. Do you understand that? That's worth X million dollars a year. Can't happen. Let's work together on a process. And it means I'm in meetings all the time, which I don't like. Yeah. But I do, I think, I do spend a lot of time on these sorts of things. I don't, like to, I don't think of them as conflicts so much as problems to solve because you can solve them 90% of the time as long as everyone's heart's in the right place which as I said I really think it is I think life is about problem solution yeah I mean you're just going through you know if you're the alone at a party I am like you I I'm much more open in my work life absolutely I am then if you stick me at a party and I'm by myself and I don't have a glass of wine. Yeah, me too. <laughs> a little Sauvignon Blanc does a lot. It does. It does for me too. I, I used to have a friend who, um, who would say to me, when I was a little bit scared, she would say to me, just pretend you're me, because I don't have any problem with it. <laughs> and honest to God, that's how I've raised my child. Yep, that's great. It's so, it's so it's so good. I so I think you can. It's easy to be fearful, and I'm a fearful type. And you know, I I can like even now if I have to give a presentation, even if it's ten minutes in the beginning of you know board meeting, I rehearse it in the car. Always, I, even after all these years, to lessen that fear. Like fear of the unknown, fear of, you still have that fear that you're going to fail. And those sort of things are still, I mean, they still are very much a part of me. I still worry about that stuff all the time. And what I found is even the simplest email, if not crafted just the right way, it has a lasting effect. Yes. Um, a 10-minute presentation when somebody is here's one thing that like you're riffing and you just misspeak or you use the wrong word or someone interprets it incorrectly Yep. and it can have horrible effects, right? Yes, it can. It can. It's a hard thing to teach kids. Do you try to give all of this to your children? 
Yes, and I know what you're, I, I'm sure you're talking in particular about, you know, sort of all the the social media and yeah. texting and all, how all that stuff taken out of context can be really hurtful to people. We've actually, you know, I won't go into the details, but we've actually had direct experiences with that with, with one of my kids in terms of hurting other people inadvertently by something that was communicated um, on social media. And honestly, in work, some of the young people I work with, they, they stumble a bit because they will be, you know, they call in sick, but then they post a picture of themselves partying the night before <laughs> and all their colleagues are saying, wait a minute, I got to pick up the slack of your work because you called in sick and, and yet you were out partying and I'm like, oh man, come on. It's tough. And every it's manager tough. has seen that happen, yes. by the way. Yes. yes. Every manager, because I don't know, I think I've always been told mostly by my husband, who is a wise soul who understands his wife, um, that you shouldn't email at night or like a client, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason you don't do that is because your brain isn't as sharp and focused. Mm -hmm. And you may feel like something isn't being done or something needs to be done. And you're creating a situation that doesn't need to be to be created. Mm -hmm. um, the same thing with the availability of social media. Um, Just because it's there doesn't mean you need to use it. Right. And especially when you're tired or, God forbid, you drinking, you've had a beer. Right. All those things are... I mean, let's face it, we all did things at a young age, you know, partying and what have you. But nobody knew it because it wasn't all over social media. Well, that's what's interesting. I, I, you know, I did a little bit of homework on you before, and um, I saw a Twitter feed that has nothing on it, and I saw a Facebook page that hasn't been updated. That hasn't been updated, but also like mine doesn't talk about my kids, doesn't talk about, doesn't add family photos, no. does all of that, and your LinkedIn is very precise, but there's nothing else there. You're not volunteering anything. Right. Um, do you have a, I, I can't, I am guessing you have a philosophy on that. I do. I mean, I have, I don't want my, I, I don't mind my personal life and my professional life commingling, but it's too much to me. The level of intimacy of, say, a Facebook page or whatever, because a lot of my friends, my sisters, everyone uses it. I'm not sure I want that level of intimacy with my work colleagues, my bosses, my peers. Maybe that's a shortcoming of mine. Maybe it's that insecurity, but I don't, I don't want that. I don't want those lines crossing in that way. And I also, quite honestly, I don't have the time for it. You know, I have a very time-consuming job. I have four kids. I run a board. I mean, I'm busy like you are. Yeah. When I get home at night and I do the work I need to do before I go to bed, I don't have the time. Exactly. I just don't. And I, there are times years ago where I tried to be on Facebook. The minute you post, your friends and your family are like poking you and posting and, and you feel guilty. And it's like, oh, no, I got to look at my Facebook page. And it's all I can do to keep up with my two email accounts, my voicemail, my texts. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Let alone having to check social media and be polite. Quite honestly, you know, I think it's impolite when people are trying to reach you and you're not getting back to them. So 
in a sad way, if you're not on there, there's no expectations for people getting back to you. It doesn't mean I don't love them. It's just, I don't have time for it. Yes. Yes. Well, I've, and I'm, I feel the same way, but there was a time, you know, when Twitter first came out and all the change agents, you know, they were all, they were, they were on there. And I mean, I came from the big agency world and God knows every creative director had to have something going on on Twitter or on, you know, there's always, I've got a blog, I've got a, you know, over communicating all the time. And I just could never catch up. Yes. I could never, I have, I have children and family and friends and, and work and work is, is at every level. Everybody's got this, right? Yep. So you've got all the different levels of thinking that you have to do and accomplishments that you need for that night or the next week or whatever. Exactly. Right. But did you ever feel as though you should be on? Like, oh Absolutely. God. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there was a time when everybody was on, everybody I knew was on it all the time. And some of them still are, and some of them have lost a bit of their enthusiasm for it. But there was, yeah, I definitely felt like there was a little bit of pressure to be on it, especially since my family, some, a big chunk of my family lives 3,000 miles away. They're on the West Coast, and I wish I could see them more often. Um, but again, for the two reasons, like I don't, I don't, I would never friend my colleagues, but also I don't have time to even, even if I didn't friend my colleagues, to be communicating with my friends in that way. You know, how long does it take me to get back to you on an email <laughs> or a text? I'm terrible. Get 150 <laughs> emails a day. You know oh what I mean? Oh my God. And I'm trying to slog through them all. And some of them have spreadsheets you got to open and look at. And it's like, man, who has the kind of time? I wish I wish I could have the luxury of that time, but I, I feel like I really don't. It's a priority thing, right? I guess right. I could make the time if I wanted to, but then something would have to give and there isn't that much to give. And you have four children. Yeah. So I'm, you're managing all of this with four children. Yes, but I do have uh, a nanny that we've had since my oldest was three months old. So honestly, there's no way it would be doable otherwise. Roger travels three, a third of the time. Yeah. You know, it just wouldn't work. And so we have a wonderful person who, who is there and, and helps tremendously. Did you have to wrap your head around that? Or did you sort of know... Like that was just a given and your friends, I mean, we live in a part of the world where nannies are, are fairly common. Yes. The yes. rest of the world, not so much. Not so much. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, I think once we knew my husband, you know, my husband and I discussed whether I would go back to work after having two kids, which was what the original plan was. <laughs> um, and we kind of said, yeah, you know, I'll probably go back. And then that's when we started saying, well, is it nanny or is it daycare? And. Um, and in the end we ended up hiring a nanny mainly because when your child is sick and you, and you have to drop them at a place and that you can't when they're sick and it, it's disruptive. It's very yeah. disruptive professionally to do that. You can certainly do it, but if you're doing it all the time, the pressure and that kind of pressure really, really bothers me. You know, like I want my child to be cared for. But I have a board meeting, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? And it's like, oh, my head's going to explode. I, I, I still to this day, that, the idea that that could kick in tomorrow um, 
our nanny is like, she never calls in sick. She's the most reliable person. I think she's called in sick twice in 17 years or something like that. And she's part of your family She's now. a total part of my family. I trust her completely with everything. And, uh, and we get along really well and have a shared value system, which you want when someone's going to spend a lot of time with your kids. Right. Um, that stress would just kill me. I don't know how people do it, you know, where you're, you've got some big meeting, you get people coming in from all over the place and you're, you're chairing the meeting and your child has a fever. Oh my God. What do you do? I don't, I, I still, it gives me shivers to think of that. I get stressed just thinking about that. Cause of course you're staying home with your kid, but how do you manage that? More than once every other year, yeah. professionally, you can't call that card too often, you know. And our family, my family doesn't live here, right? There's no yeah. one to call. There's no family. My parents aren't right. there to pitch in. Roger's parents were unable to do it, and now they're both deceased. We, we didn't, couldn't draw on yes. that, you know, which would have made that maybe doable. Like if I ended up staying in Oregon and my, my parents, because they've helped my sisters tremendously with those sorts of situations. But so... Wow. No, I mean, is, is that is that one of your great fears? Like, what are, what are the career wise? Do you have any fears? Because you're at a certain level that most people would be like, "Wow, um, you kind of get to know that you're really good at what you do." Um, I I don't have a big overarching fear. I have, as I mentioned to you, like little little fears, like performance yeah. anxiety on a regular basis. Um, I don't think I have a big fear. I, I think the job I have now will constantly keep me engaged. Yeah. We're, the company I work for, and I think this is so key to my happiness, is, is the right culture. It's very innovative. It's trying to change everything. We're, we're racing down the road at 60 miles an hour and changing the tire, you know, that kind of thing. And so there's always a lot going on and new challenges for me. So my fear otherwise might be that I get bored and, you know, I'm kind of getting later in my career and do I want to really jump ship and go elsewhere? Not saying I wouldn't yeah. if it got really boring, but I feel like I'm challenged constantly. My boss is amazing to work for and he's always pushing me outside my comfort zone, which is what I need. Right. So, um, so then I, when I'm, I'm stressed about those things, but then when I accomplish them, it just reinforces you know, the confidence. So, um, so it's been helpful. I, I love working for bosses who do that because you really, you, you may feel in the short term, like, Oh my God, I can't do that. I can't take that on. I can't possibly take that on. And then you take it on you do well. And you, the next time one of those things comes down, you're like, well, maybe I can do this. It well, seems overwhelming, yeah. but maybe I can cause I've done it a few times now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you start to get confidence. Well, and it's flattering in its own way, because this person obviously understands you and sees your potential. And I think that's what, I think that's what's so valuable and, and often missed in the C-suite. Often missed is uh, taking the care and time to know the people that are working with you and and driving them toward their best selves so they can drive their people and that that's where trickle down works it does it really does it really does and and actually if you're forced into something that's your takes a ton of your time and by the way your your 60 hour week job doesn't go away it can be a forcing function you have to force stuff down that you may not want to you know i don't as i came up in my career 
I used to like to do my, the work myself, you know, when yeah. you're younger in your career, like I want to do this. And then you learn, well, you got to teach the people that work for you so that they can do it. And then as you, as you keep moving, you just, there's no way on earth you could do it yourself. And it, you know, obviously every, your team does 99% of the work and you're just managing. But I know, you know when I was younger in my career, I, I found that hard, you know, it's like, I don't have time to teach you how to do it. I'm so busy doing it. Right. <laughs> and then, right. And then how when do you, you find that time? Yeah. So now, I mean, obviously at a certain level, you, 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 you know, you have to, and you have to delegate and, and people are happier when you delegate and stretch them and they end up doing the best work and you end up being a better person because of it. And it's this sort of great cycle of, uh, of everyone being happy, you know, um, and not to say, not to say everyone's always happy, but I do think that people naturally have an element of comp competition and people naturally resist new challenge but feel good when they conquer it <laughs> i think that's human nature and most people and come out the other side feeling better about themselves how most do, of the time how do you act as because this organization and and correct me if i'm wrong because i'm not from this area and i i don't know the organization's whole history but i know for a fact from having witnessed it that you were a change agent for the website Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I imagine that the culture has shifted to be this innovation area, which means that you had legacy teams or people in the organization yeah. that didn't feel comfortable with new ways of doing things and change. How do you manage that? Yeah, you're very you're you're very right. So the 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 average tenure is really long in the company that I joined. Um, there are some, some of my direct reports are new to the industry. So of the six of them, um, three are new, meaning they, they didn't grow up in that culture and the other ones are not. And I think initially it was hard, but again, it gets to that. If you're part of a bigger vision and you can help them see the bigger vision, then these little impediments are are conquerable and there's a reason to move on from them do you know what i mean because yeah. if people are fearful and they don't understand where we're going they're going to focus on the minutiae of the newest change and how it threatens them but if you have a shared goal it sounds like you know stupid sort of business speak but it's really true and my boss is great about this is our shared goal this is where we want to be everything we're doing is geared toward that. All these things indirectly relate that, to that. And me as a manager, I need to then translate that to my team and say, okay, the reason we've changed this is because it's a stepping stone to this, which ends up here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. At the, at the vision. So, um, so it's, again, about communicating their role in the big picture to, to help them understand that if they adopt this change, they're going to be part of this successful vision. If they don't, you know, they may not be around because we're and moving too fast for people who stick their feet in the mud and don't want to move. Because that's a culture shift. That's it is a not, huge culture yeah, shift. It's not just, it's, it's going from a sleepy organization where everybody knows your name to the fear, and especially with people who've been there a long time, that the or the organization is now all techno and 
numbers based and and new deliverables new that's all scary right it is it's scary and and i wish i could say that we we didn't have a ton of attrition when it's the new ceo is as i said great and getting everyone rallied around this future vision it's not it's nothing that i did i'm just merely a mouthpiece for that in my group you know right. he is amazing at that and people literally get excited about it and we have these giant meetings with more than a thousand people and people like get teary when he speaks really yeah and so it's sort of people are along for the ride because they want a piece of that vision you know so it's really really important as a senior leader to be that translator on a day-to-day basis to keep them as motivated as they are once a year in that big meeting. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and that's, I see that as a chunk of my role is to keep people focused, their eye on the prize. And that this is why we're doing this. And don't forget, there's no way we're going to, because we, we've set hugely aggressive goals, you know, big, hairy, yeah. audacious goals on purpose. They're stretch goals. Half of them you never achieve, but they're designed to make you think outside of the box. Right. And they're designed to have Everyone from the most junior person to the most senior person have a very short list of goals that they focus on because they know their role in achieving that long-term vision. So uh, I think that's really important. I've worked for companies where the strategic vision changed every month as the, or at least every quarter yeah. as the quarterly financials came out. And they're like, oh, that's no longer our vision. We're having a tough quarter. Let's get all the money funded. That's a hard world to live in. Yeah. And, and, and while they may not be aware of it, it's actually much, much uh, less good for your career. Yes. To have your company pivoting off of last month's figures. That's exactly right. It's a, it's a death by a thousand cuts, too. It's very unhealthy for the company. Did you have any mentors? Do you consider this person who is your boss now? Someone oh, sure. Them. Absolutely. Um, there have been a couple. Uh, certainly my dad was a big factor. You know, my dad and I are very similar personalities. Really? Yeah. You know, he was kind of a late bloomer, as I said. I was a late bloomer. I was a year younger than everyone in my class. And then I, even then, I think I was maybe two years behind, maybe because of the Canadian upbringing. I don't know. I feel like everything came slowly to mm-hmm. me as a young person. But also, my dad worked like a dog. And he was so intellectually curious about everything. And we used to go camping because we didn't have any money growing up. So instead of, you know, going to a hotel and we'd go camping, it was cheap. And we had this long ride from our house into Washington state and we'd go camp on this piece of property we owned. Um, And I would always ride with my dad. I love my mom to death, but my dad, he would get, he'd start lecturing the minute you sat down and I loved it. I mean, some people may not like that, but he knew so much about history, about beekeeping, obviously about everything medical, law. He was always reading about stuff. He was a huge reader. He is a huge reader, as is my mom. So I love that about him. He was always very intellectually curious. My mom was too, but she wasn't as given to lecturing, almost lecturing. <laughs> and he worked so hard. And I think that really translated to me. Because yeah. I'm a really hard worker. I've gotten ahead not because of my brilliance, but because I've always worked like a dog, even from teen, you know, preteen working as a strawberry picker and you know, all the way. I've always had a job. I've always I've never been afraid of working hard. And um and I think that came from my dad. But I think part of that is 
powered by that enthusiasm, that natural optimistic enthusiasm that you carry with you, which you said you've had, you know, it was sort of baked in. I think so, yeah. Um, because, because it's enthusiasm that, so all of a sudden you're not working hard because, you know, at a job you hate, you seem to find the good part of it and embrace it because I think that's the only way you can work. Absolutely. The kinds of hours and the, and the amount that it must pull from you at, at every level. One last question. Challenges. Has there ever been something that has has set you back, not just work-wise, but life-wise? Has has there been something that was just it 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 took a moment for you to sort of be able to manage it? I, I think there have been a couple. One one most notable one was obviously that move from Canada to the US in high school. That was very shaping for me because I think it I think I was a much more outgoing person socially before that happened. I think that made me a more introverted person. So it changed my personality, I think, a bit. Um, and I think another really big time of change was my freshman year in college. So um, my, my high school was only okay, you know, and I, uh, I wanted to be a chemical engineer. So, and I was way behind, as I mentioned, I was way behind in everything quantitative. Like, what a joke that I would decide to take that as my... So my first semester, um, freshman year, I got a, a GPA of 1.9. Oh, hard. Oh, my God. Mentally. Just, just massive failure. And, and it's not like I was partying. I was working like a dog. But I didn't know how to study. I'd never really been taught how to study for an exam. I was trying to do calculus without having pre-calculus or even pre-pre-calculus. You know, it was just a recipe for disaster. And I was... I was so, so disheartened. It was such a low, low, low point. Um, but I, I look back at it and it put so much fight in me. So it's, it's actually, a, it was a real awakening, rude awakening because I did pretty well in high school without doing much. Then I got into college and, and I took a hard major and I was like, this isn't so easy. And in fact, I can't even claw my way above a 1.9, Yeah, you know, what a shock, you know, for me. I was really shocked and really down. And But I, I moved out of that major because it was kind of impossible to do without the prerequisite courses. And, uh, and I eventually changed majors, as you know, to be a math major. But I ended up getting great grades after that um, and, you know, built back my confidence. But that was shattering to me. And I think about it with my kids, um, like my um, my older kids who who when they transitioned to middle school had a, a similar sort of A student down a C student overnight type situation and how devastating it was for them. And my husband had a similar thing happen in his, in his high school, right when he was going into high school. So it was useful for us to draw on our own experience and say, this too will pass and they'll emerge stronger for this because it's very humbling to get your butt kicked like that. And it really motivates you. <laughs> Right <laughs> to figure out what went wrong and never do it again. So. And I think, and I think, um, people who come from backgrounds that are, and my background happens to be ridiculously similar to yours from a different place. Um, but we have children who have had the benefit of growing up in a good time economically. Yes. And you know, can you build in 
that hard crusty shell that helped us. Yeah. Yeah. It's a debate. Yeah. But, but I but I do think that it's it's good to have to become totally unhinged in a difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Not become unhinged, but you can get cocky almost. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and having a great failure can be much more valuable to your future self, at least professionally, than just being successful all the time. Yeah. It, it really, like, even now, or the other big thing was when I went into consulting, where consulting was so, even after business school, and um, and that was a real eye-opener, too, because I worked so many hours, and I never pulled an all-nighter until a group project in business school. And I'd never pulled one prior to that professionally. Never. And I'm not an all nighter person. I'm a get up five in the morning. I'm in bed by nine 30. That's what my comfort zone going to consulting. You pull an all nighter every single project before the final. And I was like, Oh my God, this is so hard. It's so many hours. It's so much stress. They're, 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 the clients are paying such a large amount for me to be there because I'm supposed to be so smart. And I'm really not. I don't know anything about this industry. <laughs> I learned about it yesterday. You know what I mean? That was very, very stressful too. But again, it's good to have those things because now my worst week is nothing even close to consulting. Do you know what I mean? I look back and right. I'm like, okay, so I've had a long day. I've been traveling. I got home at midnight. I have to get up at five. You know, I got a lot of stuff to do on Friday, but it's only Wednesday. It's not Thursday night at 10. <laughs> Which is what used to happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a good reference point to have those tough situations because you can't, it's hard to get bummed and stressed when you know how bad it really could be. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, or the first two months of a colicky baby, much the same. Eb- you can exactly. live through that. Anything, you can get through anything after that. Yes. Yes. And, and this is where we'll end. Thank you. 